Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, July 19th, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Glad to be back with you after a three-show break. Um, thank you for all of your concerned emails. We were actually just, you know, basically... Abe was at a wedding. I was visiting my kids at camp. Uh, Noah, Noah had some time off. Christine was doing some research, and so we... We actually do have other things to do on very rare occasions. Um, and so, uh, but thank you very much for your concern and your good wishes and your, and your upset at our, at our not being there to yammer into your ears, but we are back to yammer into your ears. That's I want me, the record you know. to reflect that I was at a funeral so that when I take an actual vacation, people don't think I'm, uh, I'm this is theft of services here. I, I, I did not want to that that was for you to explain well, to people you were at a funeral it was at a wedding uh i was i was uh, i was at camp having my my son cry uh, because uh, we weren't taking him home that was really fun and christine was i don't know doing doing research in the library right so of course one of my favorite things to do <laughs> yeah so so of course uh, i'm talking about uh and guess what? I, I had the best time. You had the best time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I yesterday had this experience, which is that uh, I was so excited because we found a new way to get to this camp, which is in north central Wisconsin. We flew to Madison, Wisconsin and drove from there four hours. It was great on the way out. We flew. We got, got the car right out of the airport. We drove up. We stopped in Wausau, Wisconsin for lunch. We went to a Walmart. We went to the camp. And then on the way back on Monday, I was like, oh, this is the best way. We've always gone to Chicago, driven seven hours. That's crazy. This is fantastic. So then, of course, our flight was canceled. We found out back in Wausau, Wisconsin, on our way to Madison, and we had to, like, regroup and drive to Chicago and get on a plane in Chicago because the flight from Madison wasn't going to be until, like, today, midday, so the whole thing was that was my never say I found a really great uh, itinerary or method of traveling because God, God will punish you for your um, insolence and your um, pride in in your decision making on travel. It's always a mistake to say this is really great. That was so e that trip was so easy. Never say that. Never. That's me, John Bohartz, of course, and with me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald, who had a great time. Hi, Abe. Glad you had a Hi, great John. time. Uh, media commentary columnist Christine Rosen, who I don't know if she had a good time or not. Oh, yes. I was in a library. I always have a good time in a library. Okay. Hi, John. <laughs> and uh, Noah Rothman, who was at a, at a funeral, but apparently a very powerful event. Right, Noah? That's right. My um, uncle by marriage, who passed away in 2020, uh, was interred at Arlington. So we saw with full uh, army ceremonial guard uh, delivering the services. And it was, yes, very powerful, very moving. And everything outside the funeral was fun. Funeral itself wasn't especially a rollicking good time, but it was moving and important to get my kids down there to see some of the sights and uh, experience national pomp and pageantry. National pomp and pageantry is a good uh, transition point for the fact that um, uh, 
all of the relevant indications of us in 2022 in the summer going to hell in a handbasket continue apace. Um, uh, we're now at the point where where uh, desperate media desperately trying to do something to forestall the uh, tsunami of November are now trumpeting the fact that gas prices are only four dollars and sixty cents because they were five dollars and ten cents and now they're four dollars and sixty cents and i'm not saying that a decline in gas prices isn't a good thing uh it's a good thing for everybody who was paying 510 to have you know not not be spending you know ten dollars less to for fifteen dollars whatever to fill up their tanks uh it's still horrible and of course it's very likely that one of the reasons that gas prices are going down is that uh, demand is cratering, not that not that supply is increasing and that demand is cratering because the country's economy has taken a severe downturn or is on the mil- it may have taken a severe downturn that we haven't really measured yet or don't really have the full statistics for. We got that. We got really fantastic crime numbers out of out of major cities um, you know with with um uh, felonies up you know 20 30 40% first half of the year um all of this taking an enormous toll on Joe Biden um who in the latest poll that's the CNN poll now matching results from uh the New York Times Siena poll of last week has Biden at 36% which you may remember though the New York Times uh, top line number was actually a 36% approval 33% approval they said that if you calculated it the way other polls calculate things and they had calculated it a little differently he would get to 36 so i think 36 is now probably pretty close to where Biden is, if not exactly where Biden is. And that is, of course, a catastrophically bad number. Uh, one, The one bright light for Democrats is that the generic ballot, that is, will you vote for a Republican or a Democrat in November 2022 in the House and Senate races and gubernatorial races, uh, remains pretty even. But uh, supposedly, according to poll watchers and poll measurers and people who watch this stuff historically. Um, the president's approval rating is a leading indicator, not a lagging indicator, and that at some point around September or October, those numbers should start to harmonize. Either his numbers will come up to where the Democrats are in in the race for Congress or the congressional number or the generic number will start coming down to more adequately measure where he is as the head of the party. And if so, all of this talk about the terrible Senate candidates that Republicans have in Pennsylvania and Georgia uh, in particular um, uh, is just noise because weird stuff is going to happen where it's likely Republicans will win Senate seats that no one even has on their radar screen yet uh, and like that. So um Noah, I think you spotted or have spotted that uh things are so dire that basically now what we're being told is because uh, literally today because uh Britain uh has uh has had a 100 degree uh weather day uh that the the earth is is melting and the earth is melting 
because um, of us and we're it's all our fault. And mostly it's um, Joe Manchin's fault, the senator from Democratic Center from West Virginia. It's his fault. Tony Podesta, the head of the Center for American Progress, basically said Joe Manchin is melting the planet Earth. Could you quote. please? The quote is, it seems yes. odd that Senator Manchin would choose his as his legacy to be the man who single handedly doomed humanity. Um, that's a you know, that's look. profoundly. I mean, the um, the power subtle that this man has is an arch villain. Um, this failure fails falls squarely on Joe Manchin, as do the barren croplands, flooded homes and incinerated communities. That will result from this inaction. That's Manish Bapna, who's the National Resource Defense Council president. Um, uh, Bernie Sanders said that Joe Manchin is serving as a stalking horse for Republican billionaires. He's funded by fossil fuel entities. And his singular mission is, quote, intentionally sabotaging the president's agenda. They're really letting the Supreme Court off the hook, by the way, for sacrificing humanity um, to the to the fire pits here because they handed down this decision in West Virginia, the EPA, uh, that limits the capacity of regulatory agencies to not just simply decree that they can regulate industries out of existence, whole sectors of the economy, notably coal, fire, uh, fossil fuel, uh, power generation. Um, nevertheless, this is serving as a justification for what we expect now in the next few days, according to early reports, will be the president's declaration, unilateral declaration of a climate emergency. Um, what that means, we're not entirely sure, but it's, according to members of Congress, justified by congressional inaction. According to Senator Jeff, Jeff Merkley, the failure of the Senate to move forward yet another bill that Joe Manchin has said for the last 18 months or so he could not support because of the macroeconomic conditions, which have only gotten worse. The fact that they're surprised by it is just mystifying. He said, quote, this unchains the president from waiting for Congress to act, articulating a doctrine, I suppose, that the president is empowered by congressional inaction, uh, not the other way around. Uh, it's all rather, rather flailing and uh, I suppose kind of a, an, an expression of the panic that they're feeling and that they understand they will not be saved by social issues and the time is running short. Um, but it's still kind of sad to watch. But they mean it. They I know mean they mean it. it. I mean, it's a stage. When of John Podesta says that Joe Manchin is single handedly destroying the earth, he means it. But here's the I thing. Mean, that, yeah. They meant it when they said Donald Trump sac was sacrificing humanity by by pulling out of the Paris Accords. And they and they mean they it, when when they, they meant it when they did at, for, you know, a brief period of time, uh, you know, lay blame uh, at the court for 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 the, the decision a couple weeks ago. And, and, and they mean it now. But you, you see what how, how many how many fathers can can our, yeah. our, our ruination have here and they absolutely mean it when they say ron DeSantis is a more effective fascist than donald trump right. that doesn't mean it's not mania they i'm may not saying they believe it but it's, it's all a, it, it, just one one thing to add to that one of the reason yeah. why reasons why this message is so confused because the third the other part of that message we should mention that's happened a lot over this weekend is more a reiteration of the joe biden can't fail he can only be failed perry bacon wrote a whole column in the washington post about this i think uh, robert kuttner at, at um one of at one of the progressive magazines 
compared Joe Biden to Job. I mean, this, this idea, again, that once again, it can't possibly be anything he did or didn't do. It's just the world crashing in on him. Poor Joe Biden. But these Green New Deal type policies, all of these environmental policies, they are wildly unpopular with the American public right now. And if you look to places like Sri Lanka and Panama and other places that have experimented with a lot of these more uh, extreme policies, things aren't going so well for the people in those countries. And they are rising up and saying, you know what, we don't have any food to eat and our energy prices are extremely high. So I think that Joe Biden needs to be very careful about declaring a climate emergency that would allow him to take aggressive federal action against uh, particularly with regard to energy policy in this country right now, because gas prices are, they are down as John noted, but they're likely to rise again in the fall. He's playing a pretty dangerous game here with this, this use of executive power if he does declare an emergency. But what so, can he do? The, the, even climate activists say that it's such a decision would empower him to limit oil and gas drilling in federal waters, which he can do now and has done already, halt crude oil exports. There's nothing... There's nothing here that would empower the president further than he already has. His regulatory agencies are constrained. He can do everything that the activists say they want him to do in the absence of this emergency. What they want is the climate emergency. They want the they, messaging. Yes, the alarmism. The message, right. They want the alarmism and they want the effort to circumvent the legislature because the exigency is just is just too much. OK, but it is important to note that while they want the climate emergency, they want it in earnest. And I, I, th this is important because it actually gets to why this is so self-destructive um, in the long term for progressives. They believe this in their marrow. And they want the climate emergency because they are aware, they are grindingly aware that their message is not getting through the way they want it to. If their message were getting through the way they wanted to, there would be a national consensus on the need to restrain drilling, to move off fossil fuels to, uh, you know, alternative forms of energy and all of that, that is not happening after 30 years or 33, 34 years of being in a climate emergency, which is what James Hansen at NASA told us we were in actually 35 years ago, 1987, uh, enormous amount of ink and effort and, you know, tens of billions of dollars of philanthropic endeavors to push the American people to believe that we are in a crisis that is going to destroy the planet and that they need to jump on the bandwagon of changing wholesale the way that our system works and it hasn't panned out the way that they want it to. A lot has happened. You know, people recycle the way in a way that they did. I mean, there's all sorts of things that people have done to adjust their behavior, but they cannot adjust their behavior in a country as big as the United States. Look, I, let me just put it this way. So I was in North Central Wisconsin this weekend. OK, it's not an enormously populated place like a lot of America. You know, you're sort of reminded that uh, a lot of America is relatively empty. You drive miles without seeing another car. You know, there are no houses. There's lots of trees and beautiful vistas and all of that and not much going on. Um, but, you know, the world of relatively, you know, lower middle class to middle class people who have to drive 40 miles 
to get to a movie theater or to get to a Walmart or to get to, you know, to, to go do something that they want to do. Um, how are they going to do that in an electric car that they can't afford where they can't buy, they can't afford a charging station in their garage. Like there is a, there is an aspect to this that just, you remember that almost all the people who preach these things are preaching them in a very specific atmosphere where mass transit is a possibility or where, you know, a lot of people who do this have a lot of money and can afford to, to retrofit their houses with appropriate insulation or better gas facility, whatever, all of that stuff. And then you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people who can't. And all they can do because they believe that the world is going to melt is get more and more and more hysterical the way one does then, you know, when, you know, you think you have an irrational family, you have a family member who is obese and will not stop eating sugar, you know, or will not stop, you know, will not eat salads and you get more and more and more hysterical because it's like you're going to die you're going to have a heart attack you're going to you know you're going to have a stroke like why are you doing this to yourself that's the attitude and then you get more and more extreme but in fact they haven't made the case well enough i i I learned something in the early days of the pandemic that surprised me which was that despite the enormous size of our country you can actually see what a huge number of people do when they genuinely believe there is an emergency afoot. Um, We saw how massive populations react. Uh, You will stay home. You will wash your grocery bags. You will not encounter anyone. You will, you will, you know, you, you will go to extremes when you think there is an actual massive crisis happening. And I realized this doesn't look anything like the way people respond to climate change. Well, but even, the cold- even, even the people who mean it are f- flying on planes and driving cars. And it's so so we saw what it looks like when people actually believe it. But but perhaps what a lot of particularly uh, technocratic elite people who tend to embrace these theories and want them imposed on you know the masses who might not want to drive a Tesla or can't afford to drive a Tesla is this that the climate of alarmism, that actually can powerfully change people's behavior very quickly. And I think, uh, unfortunately, this culture of alarmism that, you know, we, we've seen it a little bit of it fade, although we're seeing some resurgence of it recently with COVID. I think that was a lesson that a lot of the technocrats learned. Like, let's scare people. Fear is a very powerful and motivating force for human beings, and especially the way that fear can spread, um, you know, given given our uh, communications technologies. It's not unreasonable, I think, now for these activists to say, let's scare the heck out of people. Look, you know, runways are melting in the UK. They've, they've changed the way they even display weather maps to make it like angry, dark red when it's a little bit warm. So I think they have learned some negative lessons as well from that experience. I mean, you know, the funny part is when I say that they haven't made their case, let's stipulate or let's 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 play a thought experiment in which we become greens and we believe that the earth is melting. Um, And as I say, I think, you know, a, a great deal was accomplished or had been accomplished in the in 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 sort of conveying this idea, at least 
to the people who would want to hear it over or you know were susceptible to hearing whatever over the over the last you know uh, say the first 20 25 years of the climate emergency that we've been in but it's not working anymore it really isn't working anymore and we were always across purposes always across even barack obama across purposes because it was under barack obama's presidency that the natural gas fracking revolution really 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 exploded now he tried to slow it down didn't you know didn't like take full advantage of it wouldn't let things happen on federal land supported efforts like idiotic efforts like new york state refusing to um you know frack on the marcellus shale uh thus then permitting pennsylvania to suck up all of the natural gas in the Marcellus shale since they had already tapped it. And so it's not as though that stuff didn't come out of the ground. It's just that New York state could have done it also and then profited from it. And so there, there were behaviors that weren't like totally supportive of it, but it also wasn't stopped in its tracks. The, the idea that something revolutionary was happening that in fact has had enormous geopolitical consequences and 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 virtues like we saw last week on Biden's trip to the Middle East that um um you know people seem to think that he was there kowtowing to Mohammed bin Salman but that was not what was happening what was happening there was a kind of acknowledgement implicit acknowledgement that all of the rules of the game have changed in the Middle East all of the rules and they have changed you know, half of it is because of the natural gas revolution in the United States. So it's not as though positive things haven't happened as a result of it. And people know it somehow. They don't know it. Ordinary people don't know about, you know, the geopolitical effects of fracking. But they know, you know, that they know something and they know that there's something wrong with the greens. They know they don't like capitalism. They know they don't like, you know, they think that our system is fundamentally flawed because it's destroying the earth. And that kind of apocalyptic millenarianism just does not ring well with ordinary people who just like want to, you know, get on with it and watch the new game of Thrones show when it comes on HBO instead of, you know, obsessing over, over you know this question of whether or not 75 years from now the planet will be three degrees hotter also you know there's only so much bandwidth for activism and uh when an inconvenient truth came out when, when was that i don't even 2007 uh, i think 2007 we weren't quite yet living i think it's earlier than that. earlier than that yeah but was it it's okay first let, me look, let me look it up let me look yeah. it up Okay. Whenever it was, you could tell us, um, we weren't all quite yet living on college campus, you know, nationally. Um, 2006. Yeah. Go ahead. So, oh, so it wasn't that much earlier. So um, that, well, the, that, well, the movie that, that, got, that garnered a ton of attention because yeah. because it was it was, you know, kind of the the the, the main event in terms of, of activism at the time. Since then. Everything is everyone is an activist. Every cause is in your face. Everyone is 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 screaming for change now. And um, it, it, that kind of got lost in the shuffle. I think that's a very important point. I mean, that that part of the problem is that 
all of this, all of the, these critiques of, of America start to agglomerate, not only in the minds of the people who preach them, who see them all as a kind of, they all structure into a kind of whole. And I think the ultimate, I don't mean at H-O-L-E, I mean at W-H-O-L-E, and that, and that they all start to merge in the idea that the world is being run for the benefit of rich, old, white men. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> you know, you have, your, you have your theory of everything there. But when you say everything connects with everything else, Black Lives Matter is the same as the climate crisis, is the same as the political legitimacy crisis, is the same as the this and the that and the other thing. And then the ordinary person's mind begins to go, yeah, like give it a, re like, no, not well, everything the, is terrible. I'm sorry. Well, and also I, I have to keep, keep uh, harping on this, but the, the ability to see the hypocrisy in the messengers themselves has, has grown exponentially. So every time I have to listen to, you know, someone rant and rave about climate change, who then hops on a private jet to go to his friend's yeah. wedding or something, I, I, you lose me. You lose me if you're not, you, you got to walk the walk if you're going to be one of these people. And none of them are. I mean, they actually okay, well, are they a professional class of elite private jet, you know, hoppers who who lecture us all on climate change they, they, it's ridiculous. Yeah, the average public voter the average voter probably isn't aware of the extent to which there is so much hypocrisy they probably sense it and smell it among people like leonardo dicaprio right but not necessarily the average lawmaker who they never heard of there's like you know 30 percent of the, the public actually knows who aoc is um these are you know these are luxury beliefs you have the luxury of being a climate change activist when gas is 250 and when you know, the, the electric car that you can you can actually afford is, is you know, something that is within reach. But when it's not, then you sacrifice your luxury beliefs. The problem of low crime and over policing is something that you jettison the second you experience crime. The problem of, uh, you know, students, uh, students of color uh, failing to get, you know, uh, selections at high uh, at selective high schools you know, is, is, a, is something that you want to address right up to the minute that everybody's scores begin to collapse. I mean, once you encounter the consequences, the hard, fast consequences of these policies, then your luxury beliefs are have to be thrown overboard in favor of something a little bit more tangible. I mean, look, that is all very true. But there is also just the simple fact that collectively on the planet Earth or in the United States, the collective of, you know, the, the human collective has a better bullshit detector than people realize. And over time, when you are told that everything is a crisis, you, people say, now nah, that's bullshit. And in fact, you then make it much more difficult when something is in fact in a crisis, as Abe would say, because there is a limit to activism, to, mo to, to motivate people uh, unless they really have a very plain thing that they are faced with like this once in a But the whole point about the pandemic is it's once in a century. And this is where, this is what, 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 what struck me about the, struck me about the last month. And we should talk about this because we want to talk about the, uh, the reemergence of COVID emergency measures, but you know, if you look at the stats, 
the stats over the last month have been bad, right? Vastly increased numbers of COVID cases. Deaths have risen from about 150 a day to more than 400 a day. That's not good. I mean, it's not a thousand a day, and the cases, the case numbers don't really matter. What really matters is hospitalizations, and we don't really have good statistics from what I can tell on who's getting the who's getting really sick from this new, much more virulent but much less deadly strain of COVID. Um, but the country is done with it. I mean, again, anecdotally, just to, you know, uh, so this, uh, so summer camp that I went to visit, um, so they had a very strict, they decided to have visitor's day. A lot of camps aren't even having visitor's day this year. So they required you to get a PCR test 72 hours before showing up and to present the results of a rapid test the morning that you came to camp and everybody was supposed to be masked indoors and outdoors. It was 85 degrees, but you're supposed to be masked. And this was the protocol that was presented to upper middle class parents, very, you know, lovely, you know, people who follow the rules and I'm sure were very uh, strict about COVID and all of that, in the you know, first year and all that. So everybody did the PCR test in the after they had to because they wouldn't have gotten, you know, been able to go through the gate and then drive on the soccer field. Nobody, not nobody, ten, nobody wore masks. And, and the numbers are there, right? I mean, it's not like there aren't numbers. The numbers are there. Nobody was wearing masks. Or they would have the mask, but they would put it below their chin if they, if they had it. So, you know, some people did it, but not many. And I, that was very striking to me because this is a population of people who are, you know, A students and rule followers. And they were, it's not like they're the sort of people who do this, you know, they're not Trump voters and they're not, you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're not listening to Jay Bhattacharya on podcasts and they're not, you know, that's not who, who, who was there. But there have been, I mean, I have, I have, I have one kid at summer camp this summer and I have a lot of friends who have their kids at various uh, summer camps throughout the country. Um, there have still been a lot of COVID restrictions placed on these kids though. And it's weird. It's kind of a, in, in a many layers of like asymptomatic testing and mask wearing and shadow bunks and all these things that actually have brought a lot of stress, strain and anxiety to the kids who are trying to actually have their first normal summer in a long time. And I've heard terrible, like really sad stories of kids who just call their parents and say, I just want to come home. I can't like, it's just this constant yeah. regime. It's a whole regime. And I think People are still, I, I think we're going to be shocked in the fall, especially at schools, when some of those protocols come back in earnest and, and people really will have to speak out against them in a way that they kind of just went along last year. But I mean, that's the problem is that people lost the thread. The summer camp thing is a thread. And the thread is that um, the most, the, the, the people who are the most COVID cautious uh, or COVID caution an abundance of caution is the watchword. And then you're talking about the population in the United States. I believe that the death toll among Americans 18 and under remains under 1,000 after two years and three months of COVID. This is not killing or harming anybody, hardly anybody under the age of 18. It just isn't. It never did. It still doesn't. But they are a much more controllable population by definition. 
They do not have equal civil rights. They do not have rights. They're there. Everyone is, you know, parents are feel fearful of their children's health. And so the the world of people that says, you know, I can't send my kid to camp unless you have incredibly strict protocols where if they test positive for COVID, they have to go into a tent over in the corner and bury their head. And everyone who they know and came into contact with then, you know, basically goes off in the leper colony over in the corner. Okay, this right? goes that back is, to the, this goes back yeah. to the they sincerely believe it, but they're also crazy, sincerely crazy. Uh, the Los Angeles Times has this piece. Calif- uh, Los Angeles is restoring mask mandates later this week because the urgency is is such that we have to put this off for a week, and it's replete with quotes from members of the public health establishment who are saying things that are insane or utterly condescending. Um, This one individual, Dr. Robert Watcher, who's chair of the UC San Francisco Department of Medicine, says, you know, I kind of wish that flight attendants would hold up a sign that says I can guarantee you that someone on this plane has COVID. I think the rate of mask wearing would go up quite a bit. It would not because people have already internalized this. You just think that they're too stupid to understand what you understand. Another guy. um, No, this was actually Watcher. He said, if you have symptoms. Are you talking about is it Watcher? I think. Watched her. You're right. Watched Wa- her. Walked her. Walked her. Yeah. Mr. Walker. If you have symptoms and you test negative, you should still assume you have COVID. In the same article, the city of Los Angeles complains that they're not capturing enough of the prevalence of COVID and because people aren't testing enough or they're taking tests privately at home that don't report to the government. And yet, if you present any symptoms associated with any head cold, which is what COVID presents as, you should assume you have COVID. The incentives being do not test. Talk about losing the thread. These people have no idea how to manage this anymore because it's unmanageable. Okay, Part well, of why it's you... unmanageable um, yeah, go ahead, is, is because w- there, there was a, an idea that was very common in the population for the first year, year and a half of this thing, that if we do X, Y, and Z for this period of time, we can beat this thing. We can if we we can get over this hump, we can get around this corner. We just need to do this. No one believes that anymore. No, everyone, everyone believes that 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 one. This is everyone believes in some version of the idea that this is here to stay. And this is this. It is what it is. And everyone's gotten the damn thing already um, or everyone expects to. So so you you don't have that. You can't hold out that prize at the end of, of, um, of, uh, uh, um, herd immunity or uh, return to normal or whatever, you know, it's just like, it's a, no, no one, no one sees that, that light at the end of the tunnel, nearly 80%, according to Axios Ipsos quote, we will never be fully rid of COVID in my lifetime. Right. Well, I mean, we're not rid of the, I mean, this is where we start getting into terminology that, you know, supposedly is incredibly offensive. Right. So that is, we're not rid of the flu either, right? And and this is essentially turning into a version of a seasonal flu or some some aspect like that. And we're not supposed to say that because it's so much more deadly than the flu, except now it probably isn't more deadly than the flu. Now it is probably as deadly as the flu. And the difference between the flu and this, depending on times, is that the vaccines against it actually do work there's not that much evidence that flu shots are that effective, particularly since they deal with 
variants that have gone away. And if they can remain with the mRNA vaccines out in front on some of this, they might be able to nip some of these things in the bud in the future if people are willing to get you know, boosted and get more more vaccinations. That number is not going to be, you know, 70%, 60% or 50%. But I don't, God only knows what the percentages of people who get flu shots. Can it really be the case that more than, you know, 10 or 15% of the population actually gets a flu shot every year? That would be, that would be like 15% of the population would be like 40 million people getting flu shots. That would seem to me to be a lot of flu shots. And that's where, that's where we, we might, we might end up. But the COVID emergency in Los Angeles is very interesting to me because public trans public transit, you are still required to wear a mask. What do you, what would you say? A 30, 30% maybe are now wearing masks and Wait, nobody where in New York city, say, man. Yeah. 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 Right, in New York okay. city, masks are still required on public transportation. Yeah. 25% of people have masks and nobody is saying boo to anybody. And, you know, I mean, I don't know what it's like on a bus because you have to pass by the bus driver, but I guess you could put it on and then take it off or you could try. I don't know. I haven't been on a bus. That's here. That New York. New York is like, you know, people were very obedient. There was no culture of, you know, there was no defiant, you know, uh, this is all crap culture. So. People have had enough and it's very, it'll be, it's a real world experiment to see how many people in Los Angeles even pay attention. I mean, Noah, you said basically like West Hollywood will be the only place where people wear, they're not going to wear masks in West Hollywood either because people go clubbing. No, I said that's the only place that's going to be enforced. There will be no enforcement of this outside of, uh, you know, Rodeo. But so that's Beverly Hills. So that's right. Once, but I don't know who's going to enforce it. That's my point. Like, cops are going to enforce it. Cops, no, busybody, busybodies, and behind the counter at your local. Well, that's not store. right. Yeah, but you know there are still places like that all over the country where you know it says, well, this is still a masked establishment." Like you know, I don't think where I had to take my daughter into a into a yarn store and like the yarn store was still a masked store and I didn't have a mask with me. And like I stood outside while someone behind the counter spent 10 minutes looking for a mask so that I could go in the store. I mean, it was it's like that, you know, this is the this is the oddity of the of the moment that we're living in. And then, of course, you have that weird thing where you start creating rules and laws that people will not obey and then that corrodes law and order. Like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, the most public known law in, you know, in the country, which is, you know, you should wear a mask, is now openly scoffed at. Great. Uh, medical offices, I've noticed, still are all masked up and asked you to mask up. And, and, right. and I don't think this is evidence of the, the, the idea that this is because they really know because they're the experts and, and they know that this will keep you safe. Um, I think it's, it's like wise marketing 
you know, well, it's also, I mean, it's one place where, I mean, I actually, I showed up for like a dental appointment, having completely forgotten to pack a mask. And uh, this is in Maryland. It, it was just across, you know, the city line into Maryland. And as soon as I walked in, they said, please take, put a mask on. And I was like, I'm so sorry, I don't have one. So they gave me one. I put it on and I looked around the waiting room and there were quite a few people who were older. And so I was happy. I, my immediate thought was, you know what? I'm just here for an appointment. We're in a medical situation. There are older people here who might have vulnerabilities. No problem. As long as they hand me the mask, I'll put it on that. I think a lot of people will be happy to do. But all of this other nonsense, I mean, including regular retail, I had a similar experience, John, where I was in a small uh, area of, of Massachusetts recently and I walked into a coffee shop to get some coffee and they were all all the they're all the tatted up, you know, Gen Z workers were all triple masked and they were like, you need to wear a mask. I'm like, oh, that's fine. Do you have one? And they were they sort of grudgingly gave me a mask and I slapped it on for two minutes and immediately took it off. But they were there was their sensibility was sort of horrified that someone would even walk in. They didn't even have a sign up, but they just all knew to wear the mask. The doctor's that, office I don't thing think is consumer, interesting consumers aren't going to like that. There's 100 percent compliance in doctor's offices. And I would I would be I would think your charitable explanation of that, Christine, that, you know, older people populate doctor's offices and it's just you know socially responsible. I would. I would have more sympathy for that if veterinary offices weren't doing that too. Right. But I, I you do, can't walk into right. your vet. Yeah. Because your dog could get COVID, I guess. Deer, no, but I mean, deer I, get COVID. Right. Fido no. is a vector for disease. <laughs> Look, I mean, you know, Anthony Fauci gave this interview to Politico the other day in which he's, you know, talked about his, you know, looming retirement at the age of 227 you know sometime you know during the chelsea clinton presidency after his face is carved on rushmore john then then he can finally retire right but he but he said you know i guess you know covid's gonna be here forever and it's like gee thanks uh so covid's gonna be here forever so Weren't you the guy who said two weeks to stop the spread or am I or am I crazy? Like you said two weeks to stop the spread. You're now saying COVID is here forever. Why don't you retire? You and you're the, the guy you're call. the guy who kept you're the guy who kept fiddling with the with the percentage that was needed yeah. for herd immunity. But that's uh, you, that was your call. Right. Wasn't my I didn't do it. But, you know, like, don't you want to crawl away in shame? It's like you're the guy who said, no, the Japanese aren't going to bomb Pearl Harbor. Then they bomb Pearl Harbor. And then you still run the Navy. I'm sorry. Like, that's not that's not the way it's supposed to go when you make the wrong call or the you know, you 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 uh, you're wherever your heart is, whether your heart's in the right place or the wrong place, you just want to help people or cure people or something like that. There are supposed to be consequences when you are an on the line, you know, responsible official for having made a terrible call. And not if you see yourself as a political figure, maybe he sees himself like a as a like a retiring congressman who can now say exactly what he thinks about Donald Trump because there's no consequences for it. He's out the door in 2025, no matter what. Okay, well, let me just uh, let me just uh, spend a minute to talk to you guys. You know, it's been a long, it's been a, a bit of time since I've told you what kind of chair you need to sit in. So it's time to hear it from me again, that you need to get yourself the X chair, spend more time in your office chair than in your car in bed. That's why it's so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort. 
So you get that patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL to offer you the ultimate customized support. And it can give you a massage. It can heat you up when you're cold or cool you down when you're hot. And now thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, you can even adjust your armrests to the perfect position. All these unique X-Chair features help the hours at your desk fly by in complete comfort. That's why I love my X-Chair and you will too. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR for $100 off your order. X-CHAIR has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. XCHAIRCommentary.com. And let's talk about ball and branch sheets, okay? What are, what are some things that keep getting better as you use them? A great leather jacket? Sure. Cast iron skillet? Absolutely. Solid wood furniture? Yeah. But would you ever think that sheets could be on that list? Well, ball and branch sheets are on that list because they're not just buttery, breathable, and impossibly comfortable. They get softer with every wash. Forget thread count. Bowling Ratch gives you thread quality. It doesn't matter how many threads your sheets have if they aren't the best threads possible. These are sheets made, made with threads so luxurious. They're beloved by three U.S. presidents. They feel buttery to the touch and are super breathable. So they're perfect for every season. 100% organic cotton threads. Okay, uh, you'll immediately feel the difference of their iconic signature sheets come in nine neutral colors in all sizes from Twin Up to California King, 100% free from toxins, and they fit the deepest of mattresses and are labeled with top and bottom tags, so making your bed is easier than ever. Best of all, Bull & Branch gives you a 30-night risk-free trial with free shipping and returns on all orders. The annual summer event is starting soon, but Bolin Branch is giving my listeners exclusive early access before anyone else to 20% off with promo code commentary at bowlandbranch.com. That's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. This is their best offer of the year before the holidays. So act now, bowlandbranch.com, promo code commentary for 20% off. Uh, what else do we need to bring up? Uh, there is, I'll, I'll bring this yes. to the table. Congress is, the Democratic majority in Congress is preparing to introduce legislation uh, to codify the rights that were just sort of conjured out of penumbras and emanations in the Constitution to uh, gay marriage and contraception. This is a direct response to uh, Justice Thomas's dissent in Dobbs, in which he opened up the prospect uh, that these rights should be revisited, that these decisions should be revisited because they are no longer supported as a result of the decision in, in Dobbs that roots this in, in constitutional language and then returns it to state legislatures and federal legislatures. So Democrats are now owning the conservatives by codifying rights in legislation as per the majority decision recommended. Please more owning the conservatives. Well, and they're also, they're us. not, the, the Republicans have already said they're not going to whip a vote on this. They're like, vote nope. your, con you do what you want. Like, that's fine. Like, so they're actually not taking the bait, which is, you know, for, so for far, Kevin McCarthy. So, yeah, I mean, there, yeah. there will be really loud activists who will pretend as though they speak for a majority that does not materialize in polls around these issues. Uh, it would be really foolish for Republicans to try to court that vote. There will be some. Um, but yeah, what we're seeing here is exactly what the majority recommended. And 
that's a good thing. <laughs> so I don't know why Democrats have taken this long to do this. The courts just provided them cover and allowed them to evade their responsibilities as legislatures, legislators, uh, and they no longer have that cover and they're acting as the Constitution recommends they do. So more the better. I just don't feel particularly owned in this moment. I uh, I can find the um, the politics, the emotional politics surrounding this decision to be very uh, interesting to me. So the the line among certain you know well-heeled serious people is that it, really following along the lines of the all-star game and stuff like that, that um, institutions in the States that are uh, passing these restrictive laws need in some sense to be punished, to force them to become lobbyists for changing the rules in those States. So the big one that I've now heard about from five or six different people is don't let your kids go to college in a in a red state with restrictive abortion laws and if you prevent that college from getting your kids uh, you know uh, application uh, there'll be sufficient pressure on the university to lobby the state legislators to change the rules because the state is being injured by the restrictive abortion laws and it's like, oh, really? So what you're saying is left to their own devices, university administrators in red states wouldn't be, would be pro-life, but you're really going to show them. You're going to punt, you're going to show that those schools in those red states, what, what, you know, how, how disapproving you are by by restricting your children's access to those schools. So here is my thought experiment to you over the next year. Okay. There is one specific college to watch or university to watch over the next year. And that is Tulane. So Tulane is in new Orleans, new Orleans, of course, in Louisiana, Louisiana has very restrictive abortion laws now. Um, and Tulane is a very popular school particularly with upper middle class kids who like the party uh, and want to be in a cool city and there's a lot of, you know, partying. So, and has a population of applicants that is not Southern uh, completely and, you know, very cosmopolitan and all that. So I like the thing to watch next year is to watch the U.S. news numbers or whatever and see whether applications to Tulane go down, whether you know Tulane becomes an easier school to attend or not, and I will wager enormous sums of money that that will not happen for precisely the reasons that you know Christine uh, you know elucidated about climate change and school because on the one hand this seems to be an emotional thing it's like i can't let my kid go to a school where you know they're in a state where there's no abortion because you know like they can't go there what if they need an abortion um 
so there's a personal interest you see because your, your kid might might need an abortion um but on the other hand you know what if your kid wants to go to a party school in a really cool city where they can hear jazz and go to bourbon street also, they can probably afford to jet their kid back to a to a blue state that has less restrictive laws if the kid gets knocked up. I mean, this has been happening for before Roe v. Wade. The wealthy always found ways to 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 deal with these uh, issues. They had money. You guys know this much better than I do because I don't have kids, but I've seen it from the outside um, for ages now. The the process, the onerous exhaustive, insane process of getting your kids into college these days um, is so overwhelming, is so pressure filled. There are so many um, T's to cross and I's to dot. Um, if you think that that some significant number of these parents are now going to put another op- an obstacle in their way um, on, on this on this course um, out of out of uh, some sense of principle and 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 political ideology, no chance, no shot. Oh, I got another school for you, by the way. University of Wisconsin at Madison, right? Wisconsin now has one of those snapback, isn't that one of those snapback positions where it's gone back to like the law from 1927 or something like that. So this is one of the most famously progressive schools in the United States and has been for half a century. So really good, like, you know, commies who went to Madison aren't going to went to uh, whatever they call it, Wisco or whatever, aren't going to like send their kids there because of the abortion rules. If they can get them in, come on, like be more credible, you know, I mean, or, 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 uh, I don't know. It just, I, I just keep, I, this is where the, this is where the, the, the rubber meets the road, you know, and that this of course gets to the other thing we haven't even really talked about, which is the, the democratic strategy of, uh, of inserting, involving themselves in Republican races to get the most extreme Republicans nominated for these, you know, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, getting um, Mastriano, uh, helping Mastriano get the nomination for, for, for governor in the Republican party. Um, so, you know, what you're saying is that, uh, you're willing to gamble with the possibility that you are going to get somebody elected who is going to make all of these things worse simply so that you can improve the odds that your individual candidate will be elected aside from the moral stain of actually supporting somebody you feel to be noxious, which is a very weird, you know, wrinkle in American politics, new, new wrinkle in American politics. But uh, it, it's almost like you want some of these people to win and not lose so that these crazy people will stop doing this. I mean, you'd think they would have they would have learned their lesson from from Trump, but if they didn't learn their lesson from Trump, they really do need to learn their lesson somehow and that they should stop. They should like, you know, clean their own stables before they go into somebody else's and try to mess them up further. Like it's it's um, well, and even even for the even for the Democrats who actually 
don't approve of that strategy of propping up, you know, election denying, you know, MAGA extremists uh, in, in order to, to give their uh, candidates an easier run, they're still going to be tainted by that in the same way that the Democrats love to taint every everyone with an R after their name with 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 Trump's craziness. This idea we do have a we have a legitimacy crisis in many of our institutions right now, particularly Congress they, and and the Dem the combination of the Democrats doing that at the electoral level while still claiming to care about, you know, the death of democracy is, is ridiculously hypocritical. But add to that the way that they they have been attacking the court relentlessly as an additionally illegitimate institution because they didn't get the result they wanted. This is not something that's going to play well. Again, with the average voter doesn't probably follow in granular detail what what the Democratic Party is doing. But they but there's a general sense of just like with the climate emergency, like democracy is dying, democracy is in darkness, democracy is in peril. That alarmism eventually falls on deaf ears. People look to back to the kitchen table issues, back to the price of gas, the price of groceries, um, what their school systems look like. There was an interesting uh, report over the weekend, John, that you shared with us on the text chain about uh, enrollment drops in a lot of these big blue cities and their public school systems. People will vote with their feet in this regard, and the alarmism ends up undermining the messaging that I think the Democrats in particular want to pursue. No question about it. I want to talk more about the legitimacy crisis, but we're, we've run out of time today, so um, we can talk tomorrow. My my, The headline that I want to point out is that uh, we've talked about this a little bit here and there, but um, uh, I, I, I am inc finding it increasingly hard to take seriously the, the Democratic crocodile tears over our horrible legitimacy crisis and the crisis of our institutions, because the more I've thought about it and go back over time, the more I think that the crisis, that the, the, the beginning of the crisis was the Democratic response to the results in Florida in 2000. So that was 20, you know, that was almost 22 years ago. I, I lay out the argument about why, why this was so, but the idea that uh, unjust things were happening in our system that meant that our leaders were and our political, the people who were elected were being elected illegitimately did not begin with Republicans. And it was weaponized by Democrats. And then the no, this is the danger of weaponizing things because you don't know who's going to get their hands on the weapon. That is the central problem with acting irresponsibly on a moment's notice because you it, it, it is politically expedient to do so. And that guardrail was lifted not by Republicans, but by Democrats for the first 10 or 15 years. And it's still being used, by the way. I mean, because you can say that our it's terrible. They're questioning the legitimacy of our elections. But then if you if you question the legitimacy of the Supreme Court's decision making, you're not doing anything that's that much different, really. Anyway, we'll 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 take this up tomorrow if we can remember, because I often say, let's talk about X. And then I totally forget to talk about it tomorrow. But anyway, uh, we'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Noah and Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.